name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And today we're going to be discussing uh, EB Was Left Out, which is the seventh episode of season two. Um, now, full disclosure, uh, I saw this episode a couple of days ago, so my <laughs> my summary of this episode might be a little bit spotty. Um, but just as a uh, for people who... Uh, if you missed last week's episode, although I highly recommend you check it out. Um, we discussed briefly that this week uh, the episode was directed by um, uh, Michael Almoreda, which is uh, of note to Josh in particular. I'm not as familiar with this director's work, um, but Josh actually wrote a uh, review about um, uh, The Experimenter, which is one of his uh, films um, from just a couple of years ago, uh, which, is, which is also up on uh, Movie Fail. So um, recommend checking that out, get some perspective on the director. Um, although, of course, the movie came out well after uh, this episode of Deadwood, so kind of funny uh, going back in time. Um, so uh, this is an episode where we, we're, uh, we're seeing uh, Al um, out and about. He seems to be mostly recovered, uh, I would say. Um, as well as uh, basically the fallout from last episode, I would say, is pretty much the the, the driving thrust of this uh, uh, this story. So this is all about the fallout of uh, obviously Wolcott's behavior um, and his uh, his murder of these uh, three uh, women. Um, so Joni has to deal with the uh, the sort of the trauma of that happening. Um, you have uh, uh, Charlie, who is uh, who is confided in by Joni, uh, in in what happened, uh, sort of addressing that situation in the way he sees fit, which we obviously is, I would say, probably the thrust of the or the the central piece, uh, centerpiece of the episode, um, as well as uh, some, I would say, bizarre subplots about uh, what's going on in the uh, Chinese part of camp. Um, yeah, what else, what else happened in the episode? There's a lot of little things. I, I, the main thing is, uh, Charlie beating up Walcott and right. the fallout from that. And yeah, I guess really the secondary main thing is the stuff with Leon and Constableton and the Chinese prostitutes. Would you say that's, that's, uh, one of the main bits? I would say it's not one of the main bits, but I would say that it is, if I were to rank them in terms of screen time, that would come second. Huh, interesting. Okay. I think I mean, well, maybe the stuff I was gonna say, there's, maybe there's the stuff so with Joni, but like there's it's it it is one of those episodes where there's sort of one main thing and just sprinkled in lots of little bits. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh there's quite a lot of um uh, Al here as well, and I think that his becoming reacquainted reacquainted with the camp is also a um I would probably, I would say that's the other, the other main. I mean, this stuff with, yeah, this stuff with uh, uh, Con Stapleton, um, and this whole weird uh, uh, subplot, I think is kind of plays as a C plot. But anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is um, that the the central conflict is between Wolcott and Charlie. Um, so before we started this episode, you messaged me to say that you were really excited to talk about it, and I couldn't tell if that meant that you hated it or that you. Uh, or you had a lot to say. That's what it was. Uh, I couldn't tell if that meant that you really hated it or if you really liked it. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what was your take on the episode? I really liked it. It's not, um, 
I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call it my favorite so far. I don't know. I, I don't know what that would be. I would have to kind of go back and look at an episode list, but yeah, I mean, Michael Amoreda is such a good director and it's so funny that he's here because by the time this isn't a situation where you have a guy who starts in TV and then he kind of breaks out in uh, like he makes a feature and he kind of breaks mm-hmm. out and he can moves on to film. Like you see that with um, that, that, that almost happened to Alan Taylor, but I was going to say Alan Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's kind of back to TV these days because his feature, his films didn't really pan out. Um, yeah, he had a shot. Yeah, ex- exactly. And now he's back to, <laughs> he's slumming it in TV land again. Um, <laughs> in, in prestige, like, yeah, only on the biggest oh, show yeah. on television, he's slumming Yeah, exactly. It. Um, <laughs> but no, Michael Almereda, he his big breakout was Hamlet, the Ethan Hawke ad- modern adaptation of Hamlet in 2000, mm. I think. And that was um, when he sort of came onto the scene. So this is several years after that, that he's just sort of popping up to do an episode of Deadwood. And I think that's really cool. I think it... it um, it's just a fun thing that not a lot of showrunners of a show like this would do. A lot of showrunners are very like of this, of a prestige show like this are all about having a very tight, uh, specific vision and getting good directors, but people who will contribute to a specific aesthetic or Mm. like visual idea. Um, so to grab, so to grab a director like Michael Amoreda, who is a, who has a very like distinct, uh, voice, as a filmmaker to get him and say, Hey, do you just want to do an episode of my TV show? Like it's something we see all the times with shows like, you know, like, like sitcoms, like directors will come in and do a guest spot. And it's like, Oh, it's funny that they're doing it, but it kind of just still looks like every other episode. Like, do you see, do you see elements of his work in this, uh, this episode? I see elements of his work in terms of like, he's, he's a kind of idiosyncratic filmmaker in a lot of ways where he will, he will shoot something in a way that's just kind of slightly askew of how you would expect it to be presented. Um, and a great example is in this early scene when Joni is talking to Sai, and it's a pretty, it seems like a pretty typical over the shoulder shot, but Joni is like half concealing Sai's face. Like she is in the way of his face. And that's not something a typical TV director would do. That's not something you would expect to see on a TV show. You would expect to see just a pretty basic setup, but he just kind of twists it just enough to where you notice that it, it, it is, um, it accentuates the drama of the scene. And, you know, not just that Sai's face is half covered, which sort of always indicates that some character is shady or up to no good or untrustworthy, but that he's specifically covered by Joni herself is a really interesting choice. Well, there's a, there's another a, a scene I know. I mean, again, I I'm not familiar, I'm not familiar with this work at all, so I it's hard for me to connect dots. But there's another uh, moment which you you may remember um, when uh, Trixie is speaking to to Seth and Saul, and uh, she says, "Tread lightly," um, and Seth is in the foreground, um, and it's a really weird, like the focus and where the focus is in the like it's. Um, I think the focus. I'm trying to remember if the focus is one of the two parties is completely out of focus when when the reaction happens, um, and it's just a really bizarre framing of uh, that you that never happens in this show. I mean, they just it the foreground uh, uh, background sort of um, focal plane isn't really adjusted usually, and it happens in the scene, and it's this really funny kind of bizarre moment. 
um, that stuck out to me as being unusual uh, for Deadwood. So yeah, I agree that there's some there's some interesting little little motifs. Um, but as for I actually took a, I actually took a screen cap of that moment because I thought it was so funny. She says like, um, "Tread lightly, he who lives in hope of pussy." And it cuts oh, to right. Seth, who's not looking at them, but he just sort of looks up, like right, he, right, like right, he right. perks his head up, having heard that line. Yes, exactly. It's so exactly. funny. It's a great. It's yeah. It's like it's a great because the two of the way the two of them. I'm looking at the screen cap right now. Yeah. So way, how, how does how, is, how I I have the focus thing probably wrong. So who's in focus in that? Well, they both are. That's the thing. Oh, they both are. Um, oh, okay. But the way that it's framed is that Seth is kind of, he's on the left side of the frame and he's right, sort of right, on right, the right. half. But the two of them are framed very neatly in the right half where it's almost its own image. Um, and it's not, like, it's not a split diopter shot. I don't, th- I'm pretty sure because I don't think any <laughs> TV show in 2004 was doing split diopter stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it has that same feel where it's like you're capturing two things on very distinct planes and relating them by just keeping them both in focus. Which is, which is probably why I remembered it is that one of them being in focus and one of them not, but that was, it's, it's sort of an optical trick rather than a, an actual focus change. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so I'm glad it stuck out to you as well. So I'm not (laughs) just, uh, uh, remembering, uh, phantoms. Um, cool. Yeah. So, uh, I guess to, to get in the episode, um, so this begins, Finally, after all this time watching Deadwood with you, finally we can move into, in my view, like the real Al Swearingen. <laughs> oh, okay. For me, I mean the Al that I associate with this show. Um, exactly, only exactly halfway through the run of the show. Exactly, exactly. Now, I think uh, that's not to say Al up to this point is not Al Swearingen. I'm not saying that there's some major character shift in that way. Um, but Ian McShane, despite giving probably the best performance in each episode that he's in, even when he can't even talk, um, in my view, just even up to this point, his, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's not really spoil anything to say that this theme or uh, recurring pattern of him monologuing to uh and i mentioned this in the first season because i thought i couldn't remember when this started happening more um clearly this is the beginning of that um when he has this he has this uh this native american head in a box right that he calls chief and this theme of him monologuing to this it is quite morbid but also very shakespearean um idea of him you know, speaking out loud to himself and to this, you know, disembodied head is so iconic for Al to me. I mean, that is like his character and he hasn't done it <laughs> for a season and a half. <laughs> so it's, it's great to see that to start to happen. And this final scene with him where he's wandering around with this head in a box, um, which I, not to jump all the way to the end of the episode, but that to me is, is, you know, is, is classic Al Swearingen. And it's so, fantastic and it's so great as like a a, as like a um prop that he can use to 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 sit down with charlie for example and try and dig out information because it's a package that needs to be sent somewhere oh i didn't label it you know that kind of thing um but it's also like so much more than that as like a a a foil for him to talk to you know it's it's hamlet's skull speaking of hamlet um 
And uh, yeah, so I just, for me, I, I think it's uh, 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 fantastic to start to see this in the episode. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, what this, what this sequence, you know, means uh, in more detail uh, in a bit. But um, I'm glad that we're, we're at that point now. Um, and we're also seeing this hilarious reveal right in the beginning of the episode that uh, the gem is connected to Merrick's uh, office. Yeah, which just I, out I of nowhere. I want to talk about that because I think <laughs> something we talk about a lot with this show is the mm. idea that it's very coherent as a space. Deadwood, mm. you feel like you know where things are in relation to each other. So this, they've almost like hidden this fact. Like we've had, we've been at uh, Merrick's office before, but I don't think I've ever noticed that it's even near the gem. Like I would never have put that together. So the fact that they're well, not just we know right that it's across from the Bella Union. Well, that's true. And the Bella Union's across from the gem, so I guess it kind of makes sense. It does make sense in that case, but like the the way it's never been presented as oh these th- these two things are right next to each other. No, you yeah, kind exactly. of have to l- go and piece it together in terms of its relation to other places. So the fact that they're not just together, but that they literally you can walk across from one into the other just going through a door is really funny and the way it's presented like al walks in and he's like did you know this door was here (laughs) exactly um and you know there is some symbolism there too you know that there's he has this weird as somebody points out i think it's uh, maybe johnny or, or somebody points out he has this weird affection for merrick i'm not really sure where it comes from and he has like kind of a heart to heart with him um and it's al, al's version of a heart to heart yeah al's version of heart to heart and it's very um sort of paternal in a way right he's he's saying you know he gives this you know little speech about how you know you you even though you know merrick's distraught about the fact that his office was destroyed and he's like yeah but you're fine right like you're alive so you know, and he says, you know, this quote: "The world ends when you're dead," and uh, it, it's it it is like sort of a you know a, a pep talk and something he's kind of, but it is kind of paternalistic and a little bit patronizing, I suppose. But it, the idea is, you know, Merrick is this like naive person who really doesn't belong in Deadwood at all, um, and is living by a completely different set of rules, morals, ideas uh, than everybody else in the town, and. I think Al can kind of appreciate that and sees that and says, you know, this guy's basically going to die if I, <laughs> if I don't say something or at least hmm. offer some sort of, you know, advice. But as he's speaking, you start to realize, you know, when he, he says this idea um, about, you know, how you got to just keep going, even though you're, you know, you, this horrible things happen to you. And we know that he had this traumatic childhood and you start to think to yourself, you know, this is just stuff that he's had to tell himself, you know, this is stuff he lives by himself because he, you know, that's how he's basically survived as long as he has. Um, and I thought that was quite, it was quite cool. Yeah, it is. It is. It's out of, it's not out of character. I don't know if it's out of character for Al to give this kind of pep talk to Merrick because you don't typically see him giving out what from his perspective is very genuine advice. Like you'll see him kind of, you know, call people idiots and tell them what they should be doing, like to instruct them like, you, you you know, in that sort of way. But you don't really see him sitting down and and very genuinely like saying this is this is what you need to do, not what I'm telling you to do. This is what you need to do. And it's a different it's a very different. Al. It's I mean, it's it is 
the way it's presented is in keeping with what we understand about him, that he slaps Eric in the face. Right, yes. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. are you dead? Um, <laughs> which, so yeah, like it makes, it makes sense coming from him, but it is at the same time a different version of Al than we're accustomed to. I, I would say what it is is that it's, what he's saying is stuff that you would, you could understand Al believing, but to impart that wisdom on somebody else isn't something he generally does. Yeah. I could see him thinking about this, which is why I connected it. You know, Al in some ways is talking to himself and is talking, which he does frequently in this episode. Um, and, you know, convincing himself that he's, you know, it's worth, you know, basically continuing on. Um, but yeah. And, and uh, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, after this, traumatic stroke and uh, kidney stones and all the rest of it that uh, Al is um, largely recovered, but we do get possibly one of the best lines um, that we've, I mean, that I've heard so far in in Deadwood, which is uh, when he's, he walks down to the bar later in the episode and Jewel, (laughs) Jewel's like, (laughs) always dragging that fucking leg. (laughs) (laughs) That was really funny. Which is just perfect. (laughs) And he doesn't say anything. He just looks at her and he's like, yeah. Like, yeah. She saw her opportunity and she took it. It's fantastic. It's like her only line in this episode. And actually, mm-hmm. she hasn't been in this season very much, but man, it was awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then there's this incredible scene between two characters who we've never seen speak, I don't think, which is uh, Al and Alma. Um, they didn't speak at all in season one? I. It's possible in passing. They certainly never had anything like this. Yeah. Mm. Um, and certainly Al never, I mean, the other thing that's incredible about this is Al leaves the gem, not to go to the Bella Union to talk to Sai or something, which, you know, he does that kind of thing on occasion. And he does go into the thoroughfare to fight people and whatever. But he goes to Alma's, like when the meeting is first set up, and we can talk about the title and how he <laughs> facilitates this. Um, you don't get the impression that he's saying, I'll come over to your place. Um, but she basically says, I'll wait on him here. Um, and Al, you know, genuinely shows up to her, uh, to her room and, uh, they have this, this meeting and it's fantastic because I love Molly Parker. I think she's a great actor. Um, and I love, and I love Ian McShane. And like, again, you haven't seen this dynamic really. And despite the fact that, I mean, think about where she was when she first got to the town, right? You really looked to, as a viewer, in my view, you kind of looked to Seth to be like you have to be the buffer between her and Al because she's based she's incredibly vulnerable to him um she's trying to look after this kid all of that's addressed again in the scene but you don't feel like you would feel comfortable in and that early on in Deadwood with Al being in alone with Alma um and here she just faces him down you know um and I think it's it's just a it it shows some evolution in Alma's character, uh, it shows evolution in Al's character to be frank. And I I I just thought their uh, their back and forth was fantastic. The one bit I really liked about this scene is when Al is talking about the Pinkertons and he says something like, um, "Their muscle for the bosses, as if the bosses don't have enough edge." Mm. And that's really like that's such an important. Uh, that that speaks so much to who Al is as a person, who we think of his him as someone who's very powerful and very in charge, but he sees himself as someone who is, you know, 
not sticking up for the little guy, but he is the little guy. He is sort of besieged by these very powerful forces on all sides, and he is trying to keep it together for the people who are un- under him and for his own sake mostly. So, you know, we don't like we've talked a little bit this season about Deadwood as a uh, in ter- as in terms of class and how mm-hmm. that uh, structure comes into play this season, particularly with the with the arrival of uh, Hurst and Wolcott. So I think it's really a cool glimpse at how Al sort of sees himself in that context. This mm-hmm. idea that he, you know, we think of him as a boss, but in terms of like a literal labor uh, context, he's not a boss. He's not even, you can't even call him a worker, but he is a, he's part of the lower class and he is being, he is being uh, attacked by the people who are above him. He's basically, he's a crime Lord, right? He's a, he's a king of the slums. Oh yeah. He, right. But he he is, he's a, he's a, he's a king of the slums, but like the slums don't have any power relative to like mega corporations. Right. Yeah we're gonna do this all cyberpunky but like that's what it is and and you you have this you know so like you can be a big a big name as like a drug dealer or something in you know in certain in certain spaces but like you have nothing on uh you know a bill gates figure or something like that right like it's just mm-hmm. a completely different scale and um and he's and he recognizes this and while he's like yes i know there's a hierarchy within our little town but like there's so many other forces out there we need to be united against because they will just, you know, um, clean our clocks if we don't work together. Um, and uh, yeah, so so there's that, and then and then you know he has this uh, this funny moment with Sophia as well where he um, he basically apologizes for trying to kill her. <laughs> 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 and and there's a moment where you almost think she might say you know that he had her family killed which is like a lingering thing that we've just are never going to probably address again but like <laughs> she, she almost I mean it seems like you know he sees her and she opens her mouth and then she just you know goes into the other room she doesn't actually say anything about that particular um, incident um, and they just leave it at he tried to kill her as opposed to he tried to kill her because she saw him kill her whole family, right? Or yeah. saw you know his his people. Um, for all I know, I mean, for all we know, she doesn't actually hasn't connected the dots because she's a kid, so maybe she doesn't know that. Um, but in any case, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a cool scene, and it's, it was unusual um, to see Al, and also the, probably the first time we've seen him outside of the gym since you know obviously since the fight, but also just in a long time. Um, it tends to be where he hangs out, whereas like Seth and other characters are a lot more mobile. Um, yeah, I guess uh, uh, Joni Stubbs is the the main. Uh, yeah, this is the thing. big stuff. Um, it's curious when we ended last week, we talked about how we assumed, at least I assumed, that the mm-hmm. last shot of last week's episode indicated that she was going to go to Al uh, for help. Or, or for for some for something that he, she mm-hmm. was gonna uh, enlist him to to help in in some way, and she doesn't do that. She goes to well, uh, first of all, she goes back to Sai. I think right. Does she do that yep. first? Yep. Yeah. She goes back to Sai, and she is. I wasn't sure really how to read this scene because. Uh, 
it wasn't clear to me. I don't know. Like, it's not that it wasn't clear to me what was going on. Like, I understand where everyone's coming from in this moment, but I don't know what Joni expected when she went to Psy. I think maybe she's just frustrated that it had to go this way that, and that he's going to, and that Walcott, she, he was going to help Walcott get away with it. But I think, you know what? I think she was thinking, you know, obviously size a bad guy and obviously he's not as like, he's not his affection is not benevolent in the way that even Al's is sometimes, right? It's just, there's just nothing really there. But I think she maybe thought, maybe he has a line. Maybe this is going to be the moment where he draws a line in the sand and says, you know, for everything I do, I'm not a wool cut and I'm not going to, you know, put up with this. And, you know, I helped him clean that up, but he has no place in the camp or something like that. So, like, that could be what she was hoping for. But, of course, Sai just uses the whole thing to manipulate her and try and convince her to come back and you know, come back to the Bella Union. Um, and it and it points to, I think, you know, there's a lot, it, there's a really, I mean, I love the final scene of this, this episode. Um, but it points to this recurring um, character arc, push, whatever journey for Joni, which is freedom and lack of, um, or, or uh, having a place to go. And, you know, at first the Bella Union is her home base, but she's, you know, obviously trying to get away from there. There's the Chez Ami, which is supposed to be this new, you know, sort of escape from from the Bella Union. Obviously, that's been tainted. And she's just kind of not helpless, but hopeless, you know? Like, the, the, all of the things that might have helped or, or given her a little bit of, um, like, a little bit of respite from the harshness of the camp are just completely absent. And I think she's hoping that if she, you know, if you just try one more time, maybe maybe things will be different. But of course, size is never going to change. Um, and then she makes a decision, right? She goes to see Charlie, who is somebody she hasn't really leaned on, although she has formed a relationship with in the past, um, to see if that, you know, bears any fruit, I guess, because she doesn't really know where else to go. Um, and she, you're right, she didn't go to, to Al. What I would say is the end of that last episode definitely foreshadowed the primary uh, point for Al in a lot of this episode, which is trying to figure out what the hell happened. Um, but he, but it wasn't necessarily to imply that they were going to have any sort of conversation. And so far, I don't think they really have. Um, but yeah, I think that was the main point of, of her going to size to just try and, because she's desperate. I mean, where is she supposed to go? Right, the gem's not going to be much of a solace to her. She doesn't have any relationship with anyone there, and uh, the only place she really knows is the Bella Union. She's been there since she was a kid, or you know, she's been with Sai since she was a kid. Obviously, the Bella Union is new. Um, so that's that was my take on it. Anyway, yeah, I do want to talk about this scene with Charlie because I think it is really good. <laughs> um, to it's put more, it, it's more animation from Charlie than we've seen for a season and a half. I would say. I don't think he's, he gets angry. He gets a little bit irritated sometimes, but I have, I don't think we've ever seen him this upset. Yeah. There's this great, we know we talked about a lot about the gender dynamics of Deadwood last week. And there's this great moment where Charlie asks her, why did Wolcott do this? And she says, I don't know that I'm not a man. And then another great Almereda touch. He drops out all of like the room tone after she says that. 
So it's not like there's music playing or like a lot of background noise, but like all of the, just the, just the hum of the background just stops right, and it becomes, ambient. after she drops that line, it's just dead silent. And it, it's so good at like just accentuating, it puts a exclamation point at the end of that line. Um, and again, not a, a thing that not a lot of TV directors would think to do because a lot of TV directors, even though there are many great TV directors are kind of workmanlike and they don't really, I I don't, I'm not going to say they don't think of messing with the basics in this way, but TV doesn't offer a lot of opportunities to mess with those basics. You really want, because of the schedule it's on, you kind of just need to get an episode out. This is something that, um, David Lynch talked about, uh, with season three of Twin Peaks. He, you, there's a behind the scenes clip of him where he's sort of complaining. He's like, we have no, we never have any time to do anything. We, he says specifically, we never have time to do anything dreamy. And what he's talking about is if he had unlimited time to make this show, he would be able to experiment and film little weird, you know, uh, random things that he might not even use, but just stuff that he can mix in in certain ways and stuff that he can mess with. And he, you know, I think if you watch season three of Twin Peaks, which I know you haven't, the fact that he said that is nuts because there are some crazy, crazy, unbelievable things that happen in that season that you never see on TV. But from his perspective, it's like, I just have to do things by the book. And, you know, (laughs) David Lynch. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I think you're right. And I, you know, to go back to, we have like four things we talk about um but to go back to something that one of one of those four things uh miguel sapochnik who directs the best episodes of game of thrones um like hands down without a question like beyond a doubt the the best episodes partially because he actually does something different with you know this incredible fantasy world and like he's the only one who's like yeah, we should like look at it or something. Right? <laughs> we have all this like combat scenes. We invest all this time and money into getting just right. Maybe the camera should look at them and <laughs> actually see the combat. That's a concept. And actually, I think in this sense too, he does do a little bit with this. There's this uh, scene, which I won't spoil for anyone. If you haven't seen Game of Thrones, do not worry. I'm not going to ruin uh, Game of Thrones. It's the end of season six, I think, um, where a character... Uh, jumps out of a window. If you remember what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do. Yeah. And that scene is amazing because the character leaves the frame, camera just sits there, stares at the window. There's, I don't, if I remember correctly, there's basically no sound. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's wind or something, but I don't even think there's that. And then the character comes back, stands at the window, and just jumps out. And it's an incredible scene and really awesome. Something that Game of Thrones never does. Um, and it's the same kind of thing where like you just you don't expect you don't expect that kind of thing because again Game of Thrones never <laughs> certainly doesn't operate subtly <laughs> and uh, doesn't really deal with um, uh, it doesn't deal with sound in an interesting way basically ever it doesn't deal with visuals very much in an interesting way almost ever I mean yeah it's epic or whatever the hell that means but it doesn't like do anything with you know, except for when Miguel Sapochnik is is directing suddenly, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we can we can use film techniques, you know, basic film techniques. And when I say film, I don't mean cinema. I mean like film techniques that you use in TV too, but just often aren't, or you could use in TV, but they just don't. Um, and it's the same sort of thing. And I, I think it does help elevate elevate the scene. Um, so yeah, I mean, I thought I thought the scene was really great, yeah. and that's also well, it's a nice it's a nice callback to to. Um, to well, TV TV isn't a Charlie. 
TV isn't a quiet medium. And I think that's why this moment hits so hard. And not to True. keep not to keep harping on this point, like we'll we'll continue, I promise. But TV <laughs> is very like loud. And the reason it's loud, I mean, movies are loud too, but movies don't need to be loud to compete for your attention. If very you're sitting true. in movies are able to operate under the assumption that you're sitting in a movie theater and it is already like there's nothing else you can focus on unless you're Very looking true, at your yeah. phone or whatever. But TV, it's like you're sitting in your house. There's a million other things you could be doing that wants to pull your attention to the screen. And it usually does that with sound, because if you're not looking at the screen, that's what it wants you to be doing. And, and, and one could argue one could argue that the, the format that people watch Game of Thrones or uh, Deadwood or well, more so Game of Thrones these days and and um, other prestige dramas. But that one more than anything. You know, I used to go, we used to watch Game of Thrones every weekend, or sorry, yeah, every weekend or whenever it would come out um, with my, like, university friends. Um, and we would all get around and we'd all sit down and watch the thing together. Uh, like a movie, as if it was a movie. And maybe because of that, they feel like they had a little bit more license to, to to play around right you can't do that on like a network tv show especially where there's ads like it's just never gonna happen because you, you just can't i mean i'm sure it's, people do but it's very hard to do that because people aren't invested in the the this the space you know the mental space that you're in for this if you had like a a big spot of like quietness in a in a network tv show it's very hard. It's not impossible. I'm, I know there's 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 ex, you know exceptions to this rule, but it's hard to keep people's attention. Whereas in a prestige drama, where there's you have an hour of someone's attention, pl- an hour plus, and you know that it's a room full of you know fans of the show all sitting around watching, then you can be a little bit more experimental, which makes you even more irritated, or makes me even more irritated. The Game of Thrones doesn't do it more often, considering they know they have everyone's rapt attention. So do something with it, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be like, you don't have to pretend like you have a commercial coming up in five seconds and you have to do something ex- amazing. Right. Anyway, all of that aside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, so uh, Charlie agrees not to say anything about um, what Joni tells him, which is that uh, Wolcott killed these three women. Um but he can't help himself. <laughs> yeah. Not from saying something, but from, from doing something about it. So, um, you know, he's standing in line at, uh, at Farnham's, uh, hotel and he uses the excuse that he stepped, that Wilkett steps on his foot to essentially start a fight. Um, and he's really like a quite aggressive. And like I said, Charlie is, you know, he gets irritated and frustrated and things like that, but he's, he's never aggressive. And I think that that was kind of a different thing to see from him. Yeah, it is definitely not the not the Charlie we're like I like I said about Al not not the Charlie we're accustomed to either. Um, the someone who's very uh, brutal and and furious and it's it's cool like it's cool to see that from him for this reason he, that it is a very righteous fury mm. that he it is in defense of someone he cares about and in defense of just the just you know goodness you know Wolcott is a very bad person right um but I also think it's interesting that he does this and not like we'll get into the whole town meeting which is about sort of chastising him for doing this because we have to be care- very careful about him because of Hurst but I think that Charlie yeah. is kind it's remarkably prudent of him because he is the sheriff's deputy I was gonna say he's a sheriff's deputy which is which is a two-edged sword right he has to follow rules but is also supposed to be enforcing the rules right yeah like I think that the 
they're kind of wagging their finger at him later in this episode, but I think it is what he does is far better than what he could have done, which is arresting him, which would have been so much worse if you think about it. Like, what could have consequence for sure? Absolutely. So the fact that he doesn't do that and chooses just to not just uh, come up with a reason to deliver a, you know, sort of, I guess you would call it frontier justice mm. on Wolcott, but he does it. Uh, he keeps his mouth shut about it. He says he doesn't, he doesn't give any other reason for it. than he stepped on my foot. Well, he, he and, does and not that's even, the essential yeah. point. You said it's, 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 it's way better than what he could have done. But of course the only way for people to know that is if he said what Wolcott did. Right. So it's, yeah. this, but, of, but of course, like it doesn't matter to him. It doesn't matter to him if people know, right? It, what matters is, no, it doesn't matter Wolcott to him, is... but in terms of how people react to it, you know, um, this was the better option, but like, you know, again, relatively speaking. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's not, what he does is not the smartest move. I mean, I'm going to admit that, <laughs> but it is far smarter than what he could have done. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in, in a just world, he would be arrested. And I think that, you know, you know, part of me was like, I hope that happens. But of course, as you said, yeah, it would it would have bad uh, consequences. But he's in this horrible position of like, he did this thing. He's not going to apologize for it. He's not going to explain why he did it other than to give like a nonsense excuse. Um, and he sort of leaves it for everyone else to suss out. And basically everybody figures it out. Like, yeah. By hook or crook. Um, but it is. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, it's um, but it's a it's it's a great moment. And it's nice to see Wilcott get a little bit of a. Uh, just a little it's nice to see him face it's nice to see him face a consequence yeah yeah exactly yeah it's it's and it's also uh we should probably note that this is this feels like it feels like the season has been building up a this conflict with Wolcott in a way where he has been it, it feels it feels almost familiar in terms of TV structure. Like it's kind of, there's a kind of season wide structure that we would see on something like breaking bad where the bad guy of the season sort of for half the season, they get away with it and they get away with it. And you just watching like, I'm so mad. That guy is so bad. Mm. It keeps getting away with it. And then as you know, we're transitioning into the latter half of the season now. And I think this is where we're, this is a very important. I mean, we should talk about this meeting, I guess. And this is how I'll launch into it. This is a meeting where Sai is very, you know, nervous and basically says, we cannot, it says something like, this is the wrong ox to gore. Mm. We cannot mess with this guy, period, because we will get, we will all get flattened. You know, no matter if one of us pokes him the wrong way, he is going to steamroll this entire town. And in saying this, of course, he outs himself as being completely bought and sold by (laughs) (laughs) one. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Uh, But it's, which Al recognizes pretty much immediately. Yeah, of course. And I think that this is clearly the setup to they're going to something is going to get built, some mechanism by which they can take Wolcott on, some way that they can uh stand up to him and like I don't I don't think this season ends with Wolcott conti- just continuing to get away with it just because that's not I'm not going to say that's not how narrative works because a narrative can be whatever you want it to be. And it can be, <laughs> you, you can do whatever you want. Like there's no rules, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I I don't, I don't foresee them being that bleak in introducing this. It, I don't see them doing the Game of Thrones thing where Game of Thrones will introduce a character like Ramsey Bolton. And have him for like four seasons. Just For four seasons, it's just, hey, he's doing evil shit. Don't you hate him? And you're like, yeah, I, I hate him. 
And I'm I and it's and the more it goes on, just like yeah, I continue to hate him, but not in a way that's like, oh man, I this guy, this guy's uh, interesting to watch because he's so evil. It's just kind of like this guy's miserable to watch because he's so evil and nothing ever happens to him. He's untouchably evil. Yeah, yeah. And this is a great moment where I think it's showing that Wolcott, in terms of just the narrativeology of the show, is not untouchable. Like you can you can scratch him. You can you can do more than scratch him. You can beat the shit out of him. And he's and he's also not like, you know, we didn't know what his physical. I guess abilities were right. Is That's he a true. great shot? Is he good at fight? Apparently not. He's, <laughs> he, well, it's he funny. likes to prey on weak people, but he's he also to, a weak person. He says to Charlie, like if we fight, it's going to be ugly. And Charlie like uh, annihilates him. Yeah. Wolcott is not able to do anything. So you kind of get, at least I kind of got the sense that Wolcott is this guy who thinks of himself as like, we, you know, we know this about him. He thinks of himself. He likes to think of himself as very powerful and having power over people. And I think that he is, but not through brute strength, except exactly. for when it's, you know, uh, you know, but no, I think blood, that is you know, killing. I think people. he, I think he does think of himself as someone who can practice brute strength because he takes it out on people who are defenseless. Right. Yes. There you go. So he comes to this moment where he meets Charlie and he still feels, you know, he's probably still riding a little high from having murdered three women in cold blood. And I think he, when he says like, if we fight, it's going to be ugly. It's because he thinks he can take this guy. He feels like "I, I got this. I'm, I'm on top of the world. And he is, we see him at the end of this episode. We don't have to skip all the way there yet. But he is very, I think, chastened by what happens to him, like genuinely. And so I agree, but I actually want, I, I don't, I, I in no way want to make uh, Wolcott a sympathetic character. So just to no, put no, that no, out no. there before I say let's, anything else. Let's not, but, no. But, 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 but I do want to ask, what did you think of this, this scene before this whole incident with Charlie? Uh, the first time we see Wolcott in this episode where he is about to shave? Mm-hmm. And he's looking in the mirror and he puts the blade to his throat. Yeah. Is that supposed to imply that he's like, he hates himself or he's upset about what happened or is he imagining killing another person or what is that supposed to be? Because this scene to me almost feels like, and the fact that he doesn't seem to want to take any retribution out on Charlie, that never comes up. He wants to. He's upset that Joni, or whoever it was, revealed what happened. But he's not interested in getting Charlie back, even though he could. And you do get this impression. At least I got this impression that he sees this as like some sort of payback or divine justice for this horrible thing he did. And I don't know that. I'm not saying that he's remorseful about it, but that this is sort of he has this weird view about the way the world works and that he sort of accepts that um and that's the, and that's why he doesn't even try and fight back because it doesn't even look like he tries he just sort of takes it and i don't know if that's supposed to be a thing or not but i, I don't know how did you read this because i was i was wondering what yeah you think. i'm glad you brought up the razor scene because it is the way i read it is sort of like i don't think he hates himself i don't think he has any like i think he holds himself in pretty high regard which is why i, I use the word chastened like, I don't think he is depressed that he lost to Charlie. I just think he looks at it as like, oh, well, I guess that things don't always go my way. And that's just how the cookie crumbles. Like, I, th- I think that's the tone with which he huh, takes this. Okay. Okay. And I like this razor scene because it's almost like 
he picks up the razor and it's almost to me like he is just sort of mildly disgusted not with himself but with like he just remembers he's like oh yeah gross and he's and he puts it down and it is almost blasé the way emotionally speaking the way he's taking this this ad this act he's committed and it's Hmm. and it's interesting that they frame it in the in terms of like he it's not he doesn't let this roll off his back right he doesn't just brush it off and it's like oh well whatever they frame it as like there is something that's sticking in his craw but it's not like regret or or fear or disgust it's just sort of like a mild like eh. interesting okay all right yeah i mean it's hard for me because we we really as much as we as we saw in walcott last episode we didn't really get a whole lot of his internal thoughts you know, we get a lot obviously we're not like getting monologues or things like that but like it was very clear when he was very angry it was very clear when he was you know what his goals were in previous episodes and this one i was a bit more unclear as to what his reaction to this is because it's what they do suggest is it's not that he's never killed anyone before he's he may have killed people in the past he's his, been responsible for deaths we know if, he's been responsible for deaths yeah but you know, faceless deaths of like workers, you know, versus this very intimate murder, I think is, is a bit different. And also while he's been violent towards women in the past, the idea that he's murdered people before maybe is new. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. And maybe this is, so maybe it is, I mean, maybe it is a new element for him. Um, but it's hard it, it, we, because we don't really know his history. It's kind of hard to know. Um, I guess we'll we'll have to see how that how that character plays out. Um, but I did find his reaction to what Charlie did, which was basically beat him in front of not just beat him, but beat him in front of the whole town, um, and not pursue any sort of retribution for it. Uh, to be indicative that there's, you know, there's some other element to it. I guess he figured he could ply Charlie with information, or pl- ply Charlie to get information about, uh, you know, who who revealed uh, what happened. And I, now you you start to worry about what you know what this is going to mean for for Joni. Yeah, I mean, should we just jump? Uh, should we jump straight to this this last scene with them? Because I feel like we're kind of moving in that direction. Sure. The. In the Chesame, or which one? Yeah, no, the, the scene, the last scene with with Charlie and and and, and uh, Walcott. Oh, right, 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 with um, right, right. Sorry, yeah, with uh, Wild Bill's uh, letter. Yeah, and well, it, I guess we should just say leading up to this is uh, Doc Cochran goes and treats Walcott, and there's this interesting moment where, first of all, uh, Cochran says that that Charlie is uh, is Wild Bill's partner. And Wolcott says, oh, well, I I happen to have uh, Bill's last letter that he sent to his wife. So if you would you go tell Charlie that and have him meet with me? And Cochran right. says Cochran does not want to do this. He says he he doesn't say it, but he's like, look, you're clearly going to kill this guy if I send him to you. Right. I think he says, like, will there be a renewal of the violence? And what Wolcott says is interesting. He says, I don't know. I didn't do very well in the original. Yeah. And I think that is what I'm talking about in terms of him being chastened. He is, I think this is, I think he's very genuine in that moment. Like I, obviously we know that he doesn't even try to fight Charlie when they eventually meet. Right. right. And I think he genuinely, genuinely is like, I don't want to fight this guy again. He, he beat the shit out of me. Like right. I'm, I'm not interested. Well, he could have been sitting there with a gun, right. And then just shot him as he opened the door or something. That's, like that, right? that's true. He could have, um, but, but he doesn't, but he doesn't. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and he does give him the letter, I guess, sort of, you know, with with this condition of finding out who Charlie got his information from. And while Charlie doesn't reveal it, he reveals it. Yeah, because, exactly. I mean, where else would he have got information from? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and it's, you know, it's so horrible, you know, Bill wasn't a, you know, an ideal human being. Um, but he was like a good guy, right? In this, in the, yeah. in the realm of Deadwood. And to see his words come out of Wolcott's mouth is just disgusting. And, and Charlie responds appropriately, but man, that was just, that was hard to watch. Yeah. Um, just going back to the meeting from before. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about that. Well, let's talk about who wasn't there. Because <laughs> I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... Uh, Richardson was left out. <laughs> Richardson was left out. Now, that's an episode I want to see. Uh, <laughs> so this whole... I mean, it's kind of a funny name for an episode. Um, I would say that, like, as things go, E.B. doesn't... He's kind of left out of the episode, too. He's really not in it very much. Uh, he has a few funny lines here and there. And he really just does not seem... I mean, there's an, an incredible scene in the beginning of the movie... Uh, in the beginning of the movie, in the beginning of the episode, when um, uh, Al's pacing back and forth and Evie's walking with him. <laughs> um, and he says, stop walking with me, Evie. Um, and he just, like... He just is totally out of the loop on everything. He makes a suggestion at some point that, that Bullock is going to have sex with Alma. Like... Like he's like, it's as if he's five episodes behind in Deadwood and doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> that um, was hilarious. Yeah, he's trying just, to flex. He's trying to flex his inside knowledge. You're just like, no, that's that's been over for yeah, like that's, six weeks. That's ancient ancient history. Like he just doesn't know what is going on at any point. And by the way, when Seth does go to see Alma, there is now this open, you know, this wasn't really much of a secret, I guess. But now uh, Seth wasn't really aware of it in in full detail and didn't have confirmation, but now he knows uh, that Alma is definitely pregnant and that it is definitely his. And um, she, they have both agreed that they're both going to stay in the camp, despite the fact that it's super awkward. Um, yeah. It's a good, it's a good scene because Alma basically, this is, this is classic Seth, right? He goes to her and is like, do you want me to leave? And Alma uh, says exactly what Seth needs to hear, which is, I'm not going to make your decision for you. Yeah. Seth is always about like, well, I'll do it if you want me to. He does this to Saul a lot too. Like, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I think he said exactly this to Saul about this exact same issue. Like, I'll leave um, if it would make you your life easier. Um, and Alma says and no. Like, like y- yeah, you, know, you have to like be an adult. You, exactly, be an adult. You, I, I can't make that choice for you. And don't claim you're like doing it don't claim you're doing it on my behalf and that's what i thought was interesting because it's it signals this this clearly like their break is so clear now the idea that alma is now frustrated with him for even implying that he is good he would do something for her yeah when obviously he's yeah exactly when obviously it's all about him and how he feels it is and and i will say though that it really forces Alma to acknowledge this fundamental point that it is going to be super weird. Um, (laughs) and, and this might make the Ellsworth, you know, plot or, uh, uh, idea seem even more appealing if it comes up. Because of course Ellsworth was proposed this idea by 
Trixie, but has not actually, we haven't seen him make any move on this front, and it, whether or not he will or, or not uh, remains to be seen. But if he does, she seems more primed for that now that she's had to come face-to-face with how incredibly awkward it's going to be when she actually has this kid. Um, especially since Martha's staying in the town with, you know, this this whole situation. Um, so, yeah, uh, th- this is good setup for for however that uh, that that story plays out. Um, but of course we'll have to wait and see if that, um, plays out next episode. Um, so this meeting, which yeah, we've the been, meeting. we keep getting off track. Right. Um, where they're having peaches as they, as they always do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, canned peaches, canned peaches. It's like of a course. recurring uh, motif in this, in this show. Um, yeah. But what, 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 what thoughts did you have about the meeting? Um, I like uh, the most interesting thing here to me is when uh, Al says, Bullock, do you have anything to say? And Bullock says no. And Al actually caught when that scene you talked about where he's talking to the box later, Al comments on this. He says that's or maybe it wasn't that specific scene, but Al does yes, comment on it later. Yes. He's it was. No, no, no. As in you, you're right. He does comment on that scene. He, he says like that was a, he says like that was a real sign of maturity that he didn't seek um, justice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that he doesn't that he's just not all about the rules anymore. Whereas, yeah, the Seth of last season would have absolutely said, oh, we need to, we're going to go arrest this guy right now if he's killed people. But now Seth is in a place where, you know, I think, uh, I think maybe he's feeling a little, uh, he's, he's in a rough spot in this episode coming off of this conversation with Alma. And I think that kind of contributes to him looking at this situation and saying, I just can't even deal with this right now. Well, and, and let's be real. I mean, two, two things. First of all, I don't think he really knows what Wilco did. That's still that's true. That's, that's you know that's a good point. I didn't that hadn't even occurred to me that he does not know what's going on. He he is in his own little world where the biggest story is that almost pregnant, which is completely insignificant in the scope of what's yeah. happening to Deadwood <laughs> right now. But he's just not focused, uh, which is a common theme for Seth. Um, but in addition to that, um, in addition to that, what was I going to say? Um, I, I will say I'll just jump in for you. There's a Go great line it. where Sai says that. Uh, the Hearst Hearst can't be convicted by any human court. Right. That's a very sideline, very this very appeal to higher powers in a, in a in a kind of pretentious way. No yes. human court could can, can, could convict him. Yeah, like he's a he's like a king or something like that. Yeah. Um, or uh, uh like an angel or an, or a demon. Yeah, that 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 was what I think he's suggesting is like the only the only person who could possibly judge Hurst is is God or or the devil like right. us our petty mortal affairs we can't even touch him right which is you know exactly the kind of aura that Wolka and I, I suppose Hurst want to cultivate yeah um, in this uh, in this context okay but I need to figure out what I was gonna say about because <laughs> this is gonna kill me uh so he doesn't oh. Sorry, hypocrisy. I mean, how many times has Bullock just walked up and started beating random people in the town? So like, <laughs> he's done it several times this season. Fre- frequently, for, yeah, exactly. Frequently for things that are legitimate, sometimes not. I mean, but just a couple episodes ago, or last episode, um, you know, he he uh, he punched uh, Steve. Right? Yeah. Like, we talked about. We said that's his go-to move. It's his go-to, and he often doesn't explain himself or to anyone in the town, like. If you didn't see what Steve did, which is possible, I mean, who knows? You maybe were asleep or something, and the sheriff comes in and just punches Steve. You'd be like, this guy just gets to do whatever he wants. 
right? So it would be mm-hmm. some audacity to then hold Charlie to some sort of standard. Like that's completely unfair. Anyway, that's, that's all that's true. <laughs> that's true. And that is, a, that's, that's a good, like, I don't think he, he doesn't talk to Charlie. He doesn't have a lot of words with Charlie about this at all. Like, like we said, he has other stuff on his mind this week, yeah. <laughs> which is probably the biggest contributor, but you're right. It's like, who is he to say, how, how could you just beat someone up for no reason? Like right. that's I mean, all he does. It, it's, it's all he does or beat someone up for reasons that you won't disclose to us because he often yeah. doesn't just, you know, yeah. he's, he, I, he probably thinks he's often quite just, I, w- I think we as viewers would probably argue he is often. Yeah, sort I'm of also, I mean, that's that's yeah, like I, n- neither he nor Charlie are unjust in what they do. Exactly. In these but, terms. Yeah. But, they, you know, that's a very he, basically Charlie pulls a bullock and then like a bullock <laughs> supposed to criticize him for it. You know, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. All right. Oh, I feel so much better now. Um, so, uh, yeah. So. I do want to just I do just want to pop in with we talked a little bit about EB, but the when it when this meeting ends and it cuts to him watching from across the street. Yeah. Uh, I, the, <laughs> by the way, I think it was this episode. I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure it's this episode. He asks Al, am I yeah, still the mayor? Episode. Yeah, <laughs> that was so yeah. funny. You know, this this episode doesn't. And Al focus says, on like, him. yeah, you'll you'll be mayor, of, you know, for as long as I live or some sort of thing like that. <laughs> and, and, and EB's like happy about it. And I was like, OK. Yeah, but it's um, it like we we kind of came into this last week thinking that this was going to be an EB focused episode just because his name's in the title. It's not that at all, but it is exactly what the title promises that yes, he's exactly. left out. Like he you has nothing to do with what's going on, and yeah. it's so it's. I mean, we we talk we talk about this every week, but EB is just such a good character. He is so <laughs> so ri- such a ridiculous human being. Incredibly entertaining, yeah, yeah, and it's kind of horrible. I mean, I I feel a bit bad because. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, E.B. Farnham in the case of Deadwood is a fantastic character. But, like, the real E.B. Farnham in real life was mayor, was elected, and was, like, well-liked by the town. Like, I feel kind of bad. That's funny. The w- That they rewrote him to be, like, the per- the guy everyone hates is really funny. Well, and just William Sanderson is so overly committed to this role that yeah. he just, he, he smashes <laughs> he's it. Perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. Like, you couldn't see anybody else doing it. But, like, there's, like, some real E.B. Farnham, like, in history who was, like, you know, people liked him and elected him mayor. Like, he was made the interim mayor, but then by popular vote was made mayor. And people mm-hmm. just liked him. So, anyway, it's funny to see this, like, craven, you know, follower who's in the pocket of Swearingen or whoever else has any money or power um and comes into his orbit um or rather he orbits them i suppose um so yeah so uh so how do you feel about um okay so i want to just briefly comment on this because it's not like i said there's not much to say about it but it is an incredibly bizarre and i have to say it's the only sour spot for me in this episode because i really like this episode a lot i found the plot uh the subplot about um about the uh, Chinese prostitutes to be mm, <laughs> distasteful. Distasteful is the word for it. Um, um, and, yeah. and primarily because like the whole thing is played, it's played like a comedy subplot uh, where, uh, you know, the, the henchmen get outsmarted by the Asian character guy, Lee, who has no lines. Like or like he briefly speaks to Sai or something, but he basically says nothing. Um, 
Or maybe he just comes out of an office and tips his hat. Maybe he doesn't actually say any words. No, he does not say a word in this episode. He doesn't say a word. Okay, so, like... And then, like, also con- to contrast that with last episode where we saw how these women arrived in the town and we talked about how horrifying that was. And then to make that, like, the comedy subplot. Mm. Yeah, here's mm. the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> um, I'm not, like, I'm not going to call this offensive because I don't think it is. But I think it is... It is weirdly tasteless for this show, and it, yes, it feels tasteless. it is the only thing I've seen on this show that feels like it would have been written in that era, whereas everything else feels very much like <laughs> no. Well, no, it that's looks, an gee, indictment. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it, it feels everything else about this show feels like a very modern perspective on this time and yeah. on these events, yeah. whereas this feels like it could have been like a Punch and Judy routine from those days. Yeah. Like they they look like Laurel and Hardy for God's sakes. It is that like tenor and that tone on this subject that yeah we commented when they arrived a week or two ago is horrifying and it would be different i think if we knew any of these women if we knew and if there were chinese prostitutes who were characters on this show none of them have names that none of them have spoken like we we barely even see them so like yeah it is not i don't think it's bad be just because like i'm not going to call it a bad subplot or or i like and i'm like i said i'm not going to say it's offensive but it is it is weirdly uh off it is not what i sort of expect from this show in in not in a great way it is not um the sort of take on this material that that i that i like about this show and you know it starts really with sai you know saying no oh, you're going to market them better and then he starts spouting off all this incredibly like orientalist racist nonsense um and then the whole episode i mean they're not even spo- they're not even remotely spoken about as human right there's it's all just yeah. in the context of of sex and and everything and it's just like and then like oh we got we got hoodwinked by the asian guy who's better womp, womp. at doing this yeah womp womp that's the punchline and you're like what why is this even in this episode why are we doing this um and yeah, it just, I don't know, it rubbed me the wrong way because, like, again, it's, there's so much of this episode is so incredibly um, advanced and interesting. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you have this, I mean, here's a good contrast. Al walking around with a Native American head in a box, which also could be, you know, if you took it from that, that time period, done very differently, but it's done in a particular way here. Where for some reason it doesn't rub me the wrong way the same way that this other yeah like you can do right you can com- you can comment on the racism of the era in a way that is intelligent and tasteful like the show does it all the time yeah and not and not in a cloying way not in a way that's like oh tisk tisk these people were very racist the show is very smart about how it depicts the ways that they're racist and why they're racist and what it means for them and, and what it means for the world surrounding world and the, and what it means for the people they're racist towards. Right. Like the show is very good about talking about race. Um, and the show, it's not even that it's bad about that in this instance, it's that it's not even trying, like it's not even a factor in this subplot. It's just yeah. kind of a goofy, wacky, like, uh, slapstick comedy sub subplot. Yeah, and it's not clear that it has anything to do with anything else. I mean, it keeps Lee alive as a character in the background who's like this looming sort of threat, sort of. But, like, that's it, and that could have been done through a number of other methods. 
Um, so yeah, it just like feels making kind him, of... you could make him a you could make Lee a character, for instance. Yes, yeah, that's, that's one option. <laughs> Give him some lines. <laughs> that's that's um, option B. You could, or you could go with option A, which is just kind of have him lingering in the background all the time. Yeah, or some sort of thing. But it, yeah, so anyway, that aside, I love the final shot of this episode, which is oh, Joni. Yeah. Go, well, she goes first. She goes to the Bell Union. She's drunk and um, and she speaks to Sai again, right? And Sai doesn't have anything useful to say. Um, and then she says that she just wanted to turn a trick, which is obviously like not. I mean, when was the last time Joni like slept with anyone, right? It's clearly not the thing. Um, but she just saw her basically her whole opportunity and life evaporate in front of her in the most horrifying way possible and while she to her credit despite the trauma and despite the shock managed to get it together enough to save three other women from any potential fallout she didn't like she she still has to deal with the consequences of her of having seen all of this and so you know this incredible scene at the end of her sitting alone in the shesame with you know the the um the windows uh, covered um, just sort of staring in this incredibly depressing vacant, uh, uh, you know, now former brothel is uh, I don't know. I thought it was quite a powerful image. It is. It is a really powerful image. And again, Michael Almereta, great director, just the, just visually it is, it is, it has a very painterly, not to indulge in a critical cliche too much, <laughs> but it has a very painterly quality. Right. Um, the the well she's the, a very likable character you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's one of josh's favorite critiques oh for, for oh boo boo, boo. <laughs> <laughs> um no but yeah the the like the way that the light is sort of diffused through these curtains and the color it's not uh it it takes on this very reddish quality it's 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 a beautiful image and it is a yeah. tragic image and the way exactly. she's very the way she's draped across the floor it looks like it's like it, a portrait. It, it looks like a portrait. It absolutely does. Um and it is just devastating. Yeah, it's a, it's it's great and it and it does set up this, you know, what is Joni going to do? What is her role now, right? Does she does she really want to ever turn a trick again? Does she want to become a madam of yet another brothel or try and get this back up and running again? Can she even really do that? Does she have the money? Can she find the women? Does she want to bring women into this environment? Does she want to be part of that anymore? If she doesn't, you know, she thought she wanted to be a Psy, basically. But maybe she doesn't. Maybe that's not the role for her. And so it does open this window of, like, what can she do? And, you know, if she falls into depression, you know, and can't function ever again, that's also a possibility. Um Certainly that happens with characters and shows and movies and stories and things like that. Um, but if she does decide to do something, it's hard to imagine her going back to that life. So, you know, what is she going to do? It's it's uh, an outstanding question. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this earlier, but like, yeah, she has no one, really. She yeah. she, she can't rely on Cy. She can't even really rely on Charlie because Charlie is, in a, is not in the position to help her in the way that she needs to be helped. And she does. She has really no other relationships in town whatsoever. So it is. Yes, yeah, she she is in this moment. It is. It is. I'm gonna. This is the only way I can think of to describe it. It's very good writing to have her 
rejects because what Sai offers her is basically, look, you know, we'll set you, we'll get you up back on your feet, but why don't you come back and work at the Bella Union just yep. while he's in town to keep right. you safe? And that is, you can see a version of this story where she just, you know, loses. She is defeated and she says, fine. And, and everything just circles back to status quo for her. But she says, no, she says, I'm, I'm not here for your protection. And right. she goes back to the Shizami and, and, and she's all alone, but she has not, she maintains some, not victory, but some independence and some dignity. She maintains that, uh, agency. And she, and she, well, she maintains, I mean, I don't even know if agency, like she's sort of a cog in, well, not even a cog, a, like a, well, but no, but uh, some like a, semblance, like driftwood in an ocean, but, but some semblance she, of in, independence, you, your independence. In, is it's, it's independence. And it's also the, you know, she severed that connection with Sai and she's maintained that, right? She doesn't go yeah. to him for money to, to protect those, those, those women. Um, he, she really only tells him so that he can clean up the mess, but like, it's not, she doesn't go to him for anything. She gets the money and she pays it back, which it occurs to me now. I don't know how she paid it back. Um, yeah, I don't know. So not actually, clear. Interesting question. Oh, yeah, maybe there's money in the Shazami, actually. I mean, probably, yeah. Right, they've probably serviced some people. Yeah. Um, but in any case, or maybe there was, like, just money, backup money or whatever. Um, clearly, they're not going to use it anymore, so might as well. Um, but, yeah, so she, she, she's intent on, at the very least, if nothing else, maintaining her severed connection from, um, from Psy. Um, so uh, the last two things I just wanted to mention uh one it's not really relevant to anything but there's this really sad moment where for some reason someone beat jane up yeah i wanted to talk about this yeah um i don't know what that was about i don't know what the context was i think maybe it was just like it's not meant to mean anything it's just like she was a drunk and then they some random people well what what happens is because we didn't talk about this in the recap but what happens is she shows up uh, to do a package run for Charlie, but Charlie says that was two days ago. Like you're, you're two days late. Right. And right. she, and she's, you know, she's always drunk, but she's clearly drunk. And the line she says is it's getting the upper hand on me. And that is, that just broke my heart because finally she's in this place where she cannot, you know, t- talk about admitting defeat. She has admitted defeat. She is That's finally true. acknowledged that yeah, yeah. she, she does not have control over her life and how she got beat up. I mean, she was she was probably drunk and started a fight, and I think this is she is she is she is hit. Yeah, I, I mean, if I had to place a bet, that's what she, I would go she with. Started yelling at someone, yeah, yeah, and it is this just just you know not to reuse the word devastating, but it is it is just a, a, a crushing crushing moment of Jane finally getting to this to this rock bottom point in her life where she says, "Yeah, I can't handle this anymore." And it's too bad because it almost seemed like she was getting on her feet a little bit when she was working the jail. Um, yeah. But she's just gone on a, on a total bender and now she's, you know, got nothing. Um, so, yeah, maybe she'll be able to find some sort of, you know, uh, stability with Charlie again. But it's Yeah, I'm, like I'm hoping doesn't... I'm hoping that this is the start of a sort of. Of, of her building arc. herself. Not, well, not a redemption arc, but like her building herself back up. Right, right, right. Because she has been, ever since Bill died, she has just, it's just been down for her. Down, down, down forever. And I, like, I am, I am optimistic that what this represents is that she <laughs> is going to start 
getting herself back together in some way, and maybe Charlie's going to help her. And I know that that is, you know, this is not a bleak show, but maybe optimism isn't what you should be operating with when discussing this show necessarily. But yeah, I'm hopeful. Hope. I'm hopeful for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say just very quickly about um, uh, this is just a side bit of trivia for people out there. And of course, the people who know the show and know history already know this. But I didn't know this. Or maybe we mentioned it last season. I don't remember. Uh, Calamity Jane, not only did she spend a bunch of time in Deadwood, she really did help with that smallpox outbreak. So that's like, oh. a, that's a real thing that happened. Yeah. She's like oh, wow. famous for it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a cool little tidbit. Um, and remember, that is something very cool that she did, despite the fact that, uh, yeah, this all this other stuff has been going down and she's still quite, uh, quite drunk and um, to a level where she can't maintain even the days of the week. Um, so yeah, that's And you know, sad. you know, what's the saddest thing about this is that and this is kind of brilliant the way they present it. The saddest thing about this is that it is such a small moment that in the context of everything else that's going in the town. Yeah. Her most, her rock bottom, like doesn't even register. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. For it, me, it, it was like, it's a small moment, but I also was, it stuck out to me still because she seemed like, yeah. I mean, that stuck out to me too. More than because, usual. She was, yeah. It, because it is this, you know, for her huge moment. And I like, I won't even call it a breakthrough because it's not that positive, <laughs> but it is, it is such a significant, it's such a significant moment in just the arc of her life. And in terms of what's going on in Deadwood, it doesn't matter. Right. Exactly. Um, like we don't even, like you say, we don't even see what happened. Yeah, we don't. And then, and then that's the only scene we get with her. So, um, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully see that. It'd be great if, if life would, uh, you know, give her a little bit of a throw, throw, throw Jane a bone. Why not? Um, so yeah, the the last two okay, I said the last two things before, but actually this is the last two things. Last thing in the episode is um yeah, I mean, I, did you did you enjoy uh, Al uh, monologuing <laughs> uh, essentially to no one um as he as he sort of wanders around with this, this grotesque <laughs> uh box, which is just a cardboard box like you can't you wouldn't know it was a head except for that we all know it's a head um inside the box. Like nobody knows that. Um Yeah. And apparently preserved well enough that no one can smell that it's a head. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I did. And I, I like what I like of what this says about Al is that Al is the kind of guy to whom this this box could be Dan or Johnny. Like it doesn't really matter to him. <laughs> like the people in his life are the everyone in his life is all operating on the same level as a cardboard, as literally a severed head in a box. Right. And he just needs someone to talk to and get his thoughts out. I love how he he always transitions like because it's a monologue, right? So he there's nobody on the other side to respond, so he's always like, anyway, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Glad we all agree on that point. Next point. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's great, uh, and I I can't wait to see more of this because I don't remember the episode, but there is an episode with Mike, my, my favorite Al stuff. And it's so amazing. And I'm so excited that the head is back. Anyway, um, <laughs> so there's that. Uh, and then uh, the episode ends with, I, I like to, as I've, I've mentioned before, I, I love the uh, closing songs. This one uh, is, I, I was like, oh, I recognize that voice. Why do I recognize that voice? Because, of course, the final song, um, which is really, really depressing. Uh, you should listen to the song. It's it's a great song, but really sad, especially in the context of the final shot of Joni in the Chesame. So the voice is uh, 
Madeline Peru, who I've actually seen live twice. She's a great singer. I highly oh, recommend wow. her music. You should look her up. Um, she's uh, she did music in Weeds and a few other things, but mostly she's uh, um, I believe she did music in Weeds. Um, but uh, she's like a jazz singer and she's really fantastic. But this is much more of like sort of a folk tune uh, called A Prayer. And I'll just read this one verse from it, um, which is, uh, Lord, I must be strong now. I don't belong now in this world anymore. I'll say a final prayer for those I care for who have kept my company. My need is clear. I'm dying to have you near to me. Lord, I don't belong now. If you are waiting, I'm not afraid to die. Which is like so depressing. <laughs> yeah, wow. Especially considering Joni's. So you're like listening to these lyrics just after you see Joni sitting there and you're like, you know, I hope she's not going to like kill herself or something. Like this is yeah. really sad. Um, but she, I mean, you can definitely feel like it, whether or not that it's supposed to imply that something's going to happen to her. It's definitely emblematic of her emotional state, which is, you know, I have nowhere to go. My ally was literally killed people who were in my care were murdered and uh, like i have no options like what am i supposed to do i'm basically i'm, I'm ready to die and uh yeah so i just found it, found it to be excellent song choice incredibly sad for this uh for this episode mm, okay um okay so uh, i'll include a link to that uh that song in the uh in the, the post as well as a link to uh josh's review of uh the experimenter um, and then, yeah, next week we have Childish Things, um, which, what that's going to refer to, uh, can refer to any number of things. There's a, there um, are two children in this show that we know of. That's true. That's true. Could be children, literal children. Um, it could be the response of, you know, that sounds like the kind of thing Wolcott, we're completely guessing here, but it's the kind of thing that Wolcott might refer to the behavior of people in the camp, right? Because he thinks he's, you know, the only adult in the room kind of thing. Um, it could be in reference to what Charlie did, right? Like, it was quite a childish thing to do. It could be a reference <laughs> to literally anything Bullock does ever. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, who knows? But uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, all right. See you then. See you then. See you then.